Welcome to the Sum of It All Street Data Podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're exploring the book Street Data, a Next Generation Model for Equity, Pedagogy, and School Transformation by Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we're heading into part four, Transform the Culture, and chatting about chapter eight, Embrace Vulnerability, Moving Through Street Data Cycles. And Mark, I think we should head straight into some of those reflection questions for today. So I'm going to pick off for us to start with question number two at the end of the chapter. It says, reflect on a time when you were vulnerable around your practice. How did it feel? What will it take for you to continue to grow your vulnerability muscle? Mark, what are you thinking? Wow, Audrey, you know, I'm thinking right away into when the authors were writing about this idea of failure. Um, boy, that that word is is so heavy uh, mm. with educators, I think. Um, looking at page one, 170, Audrey, uh, our authors say, in the culture you are building, educators must feel safe to try new things and even to fail. And, you know, I, I think that's a phrase that we hear a bit now. There's there's mm-hmm. sort of an acknowledgement about this whole thing about mistakes and things like that. But you know what's so powerful, Audrey, is the authors don't leave it there. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what they say right after what I just read. Safety is the wrong word in the, in that, that whole piece, mm-hmm. right? Making failure seem like a quiet, closeted pursuit. And they go on to talk about on page 170, when teachers feel shamed about not meeting standards, the targets, you know, all these things that we sort of lay on teachers to, to make happen, um, that that whole vibe trickles down to our students. And they even use this phrase that it's spirit crushing this effect on students, because at, as you know, like when teachers get this, this amount of pressure that they feel like they can't, they, it's a no-win situation, that that whole idea of shame is 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 something that is is just pervades our system, and and Audrey, when it pervades, when it when it cycles down to our students, that just retreads the system, right? Because then the students are are have that feeling of of not being capable because their teachers are communicating to that non-verbally and verbally, um, and boy, what a awful cycle. So uh, that's something that comes to mind when you ask that question. Yeah, I, I think it's important to start there. I think when we're going to talk about vulnerability, it's important to start by talking about failure and shame. And I appreciate the authors taking time to do that. And you bring it up to begin this question, because that particular idea of shame leads us, as they call out in the chapter, to privatize our learning challenges and learning mm-hmm. in general. And like you said, it's totally counterproductive to both our need as educators to make thinking and understanding visible, as well as just our general collective understanding. We cannot grow as a collectivist um, class, Mm, as a group, if we privatize our experiences and sit in them in our individual spaces instead. So I think this is important to kind of take these pieces apart and, and grapple with them a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, Audrey, I think it might even be worth unpacking the idea of failing specifically within mathematics, you know, as we're reading this book with a mathematics lens, you know, I'm thinking about failing as a student in mathematics, failing as a teacher in the content area of mathematics. I I think that mathematics is one of the topics or subjects that comes to mind when we think of the word failure. Like if we ask 
the public about what content area do you associate most with failure? I'm afraid to say that many people would associate that with mathematics. So like, even with everything that's written in this book, we have this backdrop of mathematics already being this, this, this place of failure for students and adults. And one thing I'm, that I, I was reflecting about as I read this chapter is that there's, there's been a strong effort within mathematics for actually many years to shift the way we teach mathematics and to make this more of a student experience, uh, student-centered experience, excuse me. Um, you know, when we're valuing the, valuing the brilliance that our students show up with versus positioning the teacher as this person that is the sole expert with all the knowledge that I expect my students to mimic back to me. So we have that piece going on, but I'm not sure that we've given as much effort into thinking about how we measure the ways students show us what, what they've learned. It's, it's like we have one system that's changing around instruction and this other idea of measuring the learning that's not changing so much. You know, I, I think about how hard teachers are working to shift their instruction only to have their students be required to engage in some piece of digital software that's gonna spit out the value of them. And I, I just think there's a bit of a mismatch there and we, we're pressuring teachers to make progress on certain measures that are, that are pretty narrow measures and only one data point. And so I think that kind of works against the work that we're trying to do to, to really value our students. Yeah, you're pulling out all the punches this morning. So um, way to go on that one. Calling out that assessment at the end that just does not match all the other th things that we're asking people to shift in their practice. I, I think it's worthy of us thinking about spending some time there and thinking about that. Um, you know, in this chapter, they quote Brene Brown, who is one of my heroes of learning, someone I, maybe a, a Sherpa or someone, someone who help, car carries me along sometimes in my learning. And she, mm -hmm. she says, vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It's the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. And I just, I, when I read that, like, I keep going back to this idea that street data is about, it's about centering well-being, going back mm, to that idea of right. it's about well-being, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. And each of those things that she described there are the components for me of well-being. And so to think that vulnerability is that path or that birthplace or that space where it starts is, is really interesting. Um, and, you know, in my own practice, I think of vulnerability often mostly as transparency um, in the spaces that I'm in. It's about um, having a curious stance is, is vulnerable to me, um, is, is not saying that I don't, I know, I don't know it all. I, but I want to understand. Um, and so I, I just appreciate the question about reflecting on a time when we've been vulnerable in our practice, because 10 years ago, I would have a very different answer than I do today. You know, 10 years ago, I was in the classroom still, and I felt like I had to prove my expertise day in and day out to students, to their parents, to administrators, Mm -hmm. Um, and now I'm in a position that allows me to hold a learner stance as I lead work. Um, and it's a very different space to be in because I can lean into curiosity. Um, and it's, I think it's really changed the place I work and the, uh, not the place I work, the way I work, I guess, is how I describe it. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm not calling out adding phrases like I wonder, or I'm curious to every statement you make, because 
I, I definitely have heard a flood of that. And you, you can just tell that it's not steeped in actual curiosity or wondering, mm-hmm. but I really mean being authentically curious. Um, I think when we move into our expertise modes too strongly, things sometimes start to fall apart. Um, because I don't think it's possible to hold all of that expertise. I think we have to very carefully balance it with authentic curiosity and transparency. And so those are some spaces I'm thinking about that in, in my own work. Yeah, boy, I, I, it's really resonating what you're saying, Audrey, about authentic curiosity and, and, and how that may be different than us just adding a phrase, I'm curious to beginning of a statement. Um, I, I think that really makes you think about like what makes us authentically curious in certain situations and how do we cultivate that with our colleagues that we're working with and, and for our students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely more there to unpack. Well, in light of our time constraint, I'd love to ha- have a chance to think about some of these transformation cycle phases. Uh, question three talks about which step of the equity transformation cycle um, most calls your attention right now and why listen uncover, reimagine or move. What are you thinking? Yeah, Audrey, first of all, I just want to acknowledge the authors and really appreciate them bringing back the cycle into this chapter. Um, as you know, we're exposed to many different cycles in, mm-hmm. in education world. Uh, so uh, this one is is pretty powerful. So I'm, I'm glad to, to take a look at it again as we consider this. And, um, you know, the 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 cycle, the phases that are really resonating with me right now, I know you told me to choose one. I'm going to choose two because it's so hard <laughs> to disconnect them because they they lead to each other so beautifully, is the phase of uncover and reimagine. So the reason I'm putting those two together is the authors talk about um, empathy interviews. Mm. And I, I so appreciated them bringing that back into the space because um the, that practice of empathy interviews is is really taken off in many of the spaces that we work in across uh, our county. And it's it's really exciting in some ways, but then other ways it it sort of makes you wonder like, what is that next phase of reimagine going to look like? It's one thing to gather uh, lots of data around what students are thinking and feeling about things, but what is, what is it that we're going to reimagine as a result of hearing uh, from our students? Um, so, uh, you know, like just for example, Audrey, at this a time of this recording today, we're in the final stages of planning for our annual math summit that we hold here in San Diego, where we invite math leaders from across uh, San Diego County. And this year, our intention is to ground the work in student voice as we challenge ourselves and other, others to rethink this topic of math intervention. Um, what what resonates with you as we connect to, like what's going on in our world, like right now? Yeah, well, let's be vulnerable and transparent. I don't know if it's gonna work, like <laughs> talking about the previous question. Um, but yeah. one of the spaces I think is interesting, and like you had said, we haven't done, we haven't actually had the learning experience yet, but the folks who have done the interviews of the students, mm. Several of them have already reached out to just thank me for the opportunity. They're like, I'm a parent. It was so interesting to hear my child talk about this. I'm a teacher. I didn't know this about this student. And so I, the opportunity or the invitation alone just to listen to students and to ask some questions and just authentically listen was transformative in and of itself. And so I think it's really important to remember like when we're leading work, we invite our 
our folks, ourselves into that space, make time for it. Right. And then it's, I appreciate what you're saying. Then we got to do something with what we hear. Um, and that's where we're headed next week with that, um, with that summit. So excited to be there. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure, Audrey. And so maybe it might be worth just spending just a couple more minutes here, Audrey, but this idea of uncover and reimagine, but very specifically in the math space in terms of elementary teachers teaching mathematics, secondary math teachers teaching their students, you know, like it makes me just think about what's the best scenario for developing utilizing questions in an empathy interview for our math students learning mathematics. Um, because, you know, like I mentioned, there, there's a lot of people using empathy interviews, but I'm not sure how educators might use that data, especially in a mathematics context. Um, in other words, like we might ask students questions that might expose previous math trauma, right? Or math, math experiences or, you know, past, uh, past things like that. Um, so what is a possible reaction to that realization? Like, um, because I think we have some knee-jerk reactions that are, are, are part of like the way we've traditionally done business that are the way we might react to some of those that things that we learn from our students. And I think one of them is like, okay, as a teacher, I'm gonna make math fun. You've had some bad experiences in math, so I'm gonna make math fun, or I'm gonna make, you know, what I what I refer Audrey to math as like this performance art, math teaching is performance art. So um, I'm going to basically stand on my head to get your attention during mm -hmm. math. And that's going to make you laugh. And that's going to just take care of all of your bad experiences in math. Um, so I think in some ways, like we sort of just go back to kind of our, our way of doing things without really dealing with the trauma. We don't mm -hmm. want to do the tough work. And so we, we think about it, you know, in, in that way. Um, so, uh, Again, with the text, I want to bring back one more thing, Audrey. In the text, there's this phrase, uncover with a mindset of curiosity. So like, I think when we're talking to students, like we have to really come from this place of authentic curiosity. We really, the curiosity implies that I deeply care about you as a student. Not because my principal told me, you know, we're doing these empathy interviews, so we want you to talk to students. Um, and because... Otherwise, you know, it's just, I think we get back to that retreading of those old practices that for so many years, and I did this, speaking of being vulnerable, Audrey, I mean, I, when I used to teach mathematics, when I started my career, boy, I was the most entertaining person these students had ever seen during mathematics. I felt like that was my burden to, mm -hmm. to carry rather than talking to them, understanding you know, what was troubling them instead I was trying to wash it over with my performance. Yeah. I really appreciate that, Mark. You know, I think, I think the uncover and reimagine phases are spaces that I'm more likely to spend time in. And so I appreciate you talking about that. There's like the next phase, which is to move. It's to do something as a result of uncovering and reimagining. It's like, do something with that information, right? So like in this moment, that's what's calling my attention is that phase because I do feel like we've begun the phases of listening and saying, what else could we radically imagine or freedom dream in this moment could be possible mm -hmm. But now I got to do something about it. So I appreciate the authors in that move section talking about these safe to fail experiments, small four to six week 
hacks. They move through the hacks that disrupt your business as usual, mm -hmm. give you fresh street data because it's a cycle, right? It gives me fresh insight into what's happening. Um, because if, like you said, if your view is, if I am more playful or entertaining in class, that's going to reduce trauma. Well, did it? Like, have you like gone back to look and see? And if not, then we got to try something else, right? Right, um, right? And so what's funny to me is like, of all things, this podcast started as one of those hacks um, and we stuck with it, but that wasn't yeah. our original intent. Um, and we had to talk ourselves into feeling safe to fail. Um, what we don't talk about on this podcast often, I know we've mentioned that part before, but we've tried several other things this year. And mm -hmm. the way that we rethink and reimagine the way we do things based on the street data we're getting from the folks that we support, and they haven't worked. They've failed greatly um, <laughs> in one sense of it. Um, but I think what's helpful in continuing to feel safe to fail, as they've described it, is that in each of those endeavors that failed, we learned a lot. Uh, there were things we learned that we didn't know before. And beyond learning some things, we also have more curiosity, more questions that we want to explore. Like there's further, maybe it's fractal again. Maybe there's like these further fractals that of pieces that kind of allow us to say, okay, not that, then what? And it kind of just splinters and grows. Um, and so we can look back at it and say, it wasn't a loss. It wasn't something that we look back with in that shame or that fear but in that safe to fail way, we're able to say, huh, okay, didn't think that was going to happen. So now let's go back. Let's take this data that we've now accumulated in the failure. Let's re-examine that. Let's rethink that. Let's reimagine again. And let's try another safe to fail experiment. So I I, I just want to encourage, like, we don't put that out in this, in this space often, but that happens. And how do you pick yourself up and say, cool, what did I learn? And where am I going next? Yeah. That's really cool, Audrey. Well, once again, I'm going to mention the time factor. I don't know where 20 minutes goes, Mark, every time. It just like flies away. <laughs> I'm curious, what's lingering with you at this chapter and this beginning of part four? What's sticking with you? Well, Audrey, we haven't got into a conversation yet about the one of the parts of the chapter that I just found really fascinating. And it was this whole idea of rethinking uh, or or establishing some understanding around equity walks and rethinking instructional rounds and specifically around the idea of students being part of these processes. And Audrey, I have to say, I never thought about that before. And I got some very fixed mindset around mm -hmm. how these things have functioned in the past for better, or for worse. <laughs> and I just, it's made me really think about like, wow, what, what would even the presence of students being part of a learning walk, how would that change the dynamic? Um, I even thought about like the idea that I've been on some on learning walks or instructional rounds before where there's some deficit language that creeps in around students. And I'm thinking about, wow, what would happen with you students part of that group, you know, how that could change the dynamic in a positive way about that. And, and they have, uh, I encourage you to uh, jump into the chapter uh, for those of you listening, because on the bottom of page 85, the authors have these really, really wonderful tips around including students into these types of structures. And one of the tips that I thought was just beautiful is this, this idea of including students in these types of um, scenarios that 
who are the most marginalized in our classrooms. I just thought that was just a, a wonderful idea to include those students. Because I think when we think of something like this, we right away think of, of picking a student that might be performing at a certain level at a certain time and that be that student that's in, invited. Um, my wondering that was left after really having my brain just sort of like um, be rethinking this whole idea of this is, is sort of how, I'm really curious for people that have done this to ask them like, how do they handle like difficult observations in this group mm. with students being part of it? For example, like what if they walked into a classroom and they're, the, the takeaway was some microaggressions that were happening between the teacher and the students, like how, how would that be handled in a, in a discussion with students present in, in that observation and, and how that confidentially might be confidentiality being maintained? How could sort of the view of that's, that's the teacher I'm going to have next year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, how, how all of those things could be negotiated. And um, I don't say that because I, I think it's not worth pursuing, but I'm, I'm just curious about those things. And I just love the idea of our students taking on so many roles that as in our traditional schools, we just never imagined them having that voice. Uh, so super curious about that, Audrey. Yeah. Speaking of those spaces, I love the idea of student-led conferences. Um, curious about changing them to this idea of learner-led conferences in adult spaces. And again, from last chapter, the idea of symmetry of design is still with me. And so I'm, I'm super curious about how we might ourselves try on what that might feel like first. Like how do we own that space ourselves and think about what that looks and sounds like in order to better understand how we might create these experiences for our students. Um, maybe it's the reimagining the evaluation cycles and conferences that we sit in ourselves. Mm. Um, oh, wow. Super yeah. curious about it. That's where my brain's going at this moment in time uh, and the spaces I'm at. So much to think about from this chapter. Oh, I agree completely, Audrey. Well, folks, thanks for joining us for this episode. It's hard to believe, but then in our next episode, we will continue with chapter nine, calling folks in and up to equity, and we will be finishing the book, Audrey. Mm. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on transforming education.